thank you. As, uh, as Rob said, my name's Connor. I'm visiting from Swansea this morning, and it's really uh, wonderful to worship with you on such a, a special Sunday for your church. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 14. You might have it on the service sheet um, as well if you don't have a Bible. Uh, in our series in Matthew, we're up to uh, chapter 14, and let me uh, read from that now. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist, here, on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and... Uh, his guests, he commanded that it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. 
but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised him, they sent word around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Uh, let's pray just as we um, go through God's word. Um, Father, thank you um, for your word. Thank you um, for the way it does show us Jesus. And I pray uh, that as we um, come to your word now, um, you do as the song we just sang um, says, show us Christ, uh, reveal your glory to us, and help us to confess Christ as Lord. Amen. Well, when I was a teenager, um, I did something uh, really bad. I'm not going to tell you what it is, um, and I'm not really sure how you would react uh, if I did. Um, but however you would react, it was bad. And the thing about this bad thing is that after I did it, I almost totally forgot about it. For years, until one day, only a few years ago, um, it came right back to the front of my mind. And I was bound by this, this crippling guilt. I began to question what kind of person I was, whether I could ever move on from this thing, whether God still loved me. And perhaps as I confess that to you, um, something from your own life comes to mind. Perhaps you didn't have to dig too deep to find it. Something you did, a series of things you did, uh, a pattern of living that plagues your conscience, that weighs you down, that terrifies you. Perhaps it's something you're still doing. A lifestyle that you know is wrong, but you don't feel able to let go of. <clears throat> Perhaps it isn't something so close to the surface. Um, perhaps it's something you've managed to bury somewhere um, deep in the, the depths of your memory. You've mostly moved on from it, and yet, uh, like dust swept underneath the carpet, just occasionally the lumps and bumps reappear. They trip you up, they spill out the edges. Perhaps it's just a niggling feeling that you're not as good as you'd like to be. No matter who we are, uh, guilt is something that we all have to live with. And so my challenge uh, to us today is this. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with your guilty conscience? Now as we continue our series in Matthew, uh, we're in Matthew 14, and uh, this chapter is going to help us think uh, through this challenge in three parts. Uh, first in verses 1 to 12. Uh, we'll meet a guilty king. Uh, then in verses 13 to 21, a hungry crowd. And finally, uh, from verse 22 till the end, we'll find a troubled sea. Um, so verses 1 to 12, a guilty king. As we begin Matthew 14, we meet a king called Herod. And Herod was a king immensely blessed by God. Herod was blessed by God not because he had great wealth or palaces, although he did, but Herod was blessed because he had a guilty conscience. 
Now that might sound like a strange thing to say. If uh, you suffer from a guilty conscience, uh, it might feel like more, like, more of, an, of a curse than a blessing. Um, but just let me explain. King Herod had done a lot of wicked things. We learn in verse 3 that one of those things was marrying his brother's wife. Herodias was also Herod's niece, and as they were both already married, um, they had divorced their spouses uh, in order to be together. So these are far from happy family dynamics. But what Herod did was also against God's law. Uh, Leviticus 20 verse 21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. But God, in his kindness, didn't punish Herod right away. Instead, he sent him a prophet, John the Baptist, who tried to remind Herod of God's good law and called him to turn back to it. But Herod had refused to listen to John, and instead of accepting the blessing of a messenger from God, he sought to shut him up and threw him in prison. But Herod's wickedness didn't stop there. One year at his birthday party, uh, Salome, who was at this point not only Herod's stepdaughter, but also his niece and great-niece too, um, performed an erotic dance for him. Herod enjoyed the dance so much that he made a very foolish promise to give Salome whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, Salome asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod had to do it. He had promised in front of all his nobles. If he refused, he risked looking weak or cowardly. And so he ordered John the Baptist beheaded and had his head brought to Salome and Herodias. John's followers came and buried his body. And so God's messenger was silenced. But Herod couldn't silence his own conscience. And now as Jesus' fame began to grow, Herod's guilt was reawakened as he saw the resemblance between God's messenger and God's son. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. Herod knew that what he had done, what he was doing was wrong. God blessed him with a guilty conscience that should have caused him to change. But Herod tried to suppress his conscience, to resist its conviction. So returning uh, to our challenge, if you suffer from a guilty conscience, what are you going to do about it? Are you like Herod, trying to suppress it, to forget about it? Have you, like Herod, found that it keeps coming back to haunt you, even in the privacy of your own mind? It's striking that it's hearing of Jesus that resurrects Herod's guilt. Does that ever happen to you? It happens to me. You almost feel compelled to shut your Bible, to skip church, because it feels like coming too close to Jesus will expose your misdeeds for what they really are. Does your guilty conscience drive you away from Jesus or toward him? Well, that's the guilty king. The next uh, scene that Matthew shows us is quite different. Um, we move from Herod's plush palace to what Matthew describes as a desolate place or a lonely place. 
Upon hearing about his friend's death, Jesus chooses to take some time out of the spotlight to grieve away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds who had been following him. But the peace and quiet didn't last long. As the crowds soon caught up with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever planned a quiet day at work. Um, for whatever reason, that's been the day that the phone won't stop ringing off the hook. Or if you've come home after a long day, hoping to put your feet up for a rest, uh, only to find chaos waiting for you as you walk through the door. That might be something like what Jesus was experiencing here. Only, unlike us when that happens, Jesus doesn't get angry, he doesn't get irritable. He doesn't complain that he just needs some space. No, look at verse 14, look at what Jesus does. He has compassion on them. He heals their sick. Isn't Jesus amazing, friends? When I've had a rough day, I almost see it as a justification for being a bit selfish. But not Jesus. All he asked for was some peace and quiet. Yet he even gave that up for the sake of those who needed him. His disciples were much less generous. Uh, let's not be too hard on them. Uh, remember that they were hurting too. Many of them, before meeting Jesus, had been followers of John. The man they loved and looked up to for so many years had been taken from them uh, in the cruelest way. They grant Jesus his day with the crowds. But when evening comes, they say, Lord, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Verse 15. But what does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. The disciples' request wasn't unreasonable, was it? Uh, okay, Jesus, the crowd have had you all day. It's time to send them away so that we can have some space, some, some room to grieve. But what does Jesus say? They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus has been self-sacrificially giving of himself all day and now he invites his disciples to do the same. But there's only one problem. They're in the middle of nowhere and they haven't brought any food. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been really properly hungry. Um, I suspect I probably never have and some of you as you look at me now probably suspect the same thing. Um, as I was preparing this sermon, I read some descriptions online of what starvation feels like. Um, and they weren't pretty, and I won't repeat them here. Um, hunger is not a pleasant thing. And yet we all know something of how it feels to be hungry, don't we? A rumble in your stomach before breakfast. A sense of fatigue in the afternoon when you've missed lunch. An existential crisis every time you pass Greg's. I guess for a London congregation, I probably should have changed that to Pret. Um, hunger isn't pleasant, but it's, it's a blessing, isn't it? It reminds us that we have a need to eat, to find sustenance, to have our hunger quenched. The crowd who were with Jesus that day knew this. Listen to what Matthew writes. The crowd are hungry, and the disciples say to Jesus, uh, verse 17... 
We have only five loaves here and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. When the crowd had people who they loved fall sick, when they heard that Jesus could heal them, they brought them to him and found that he was compassionate and powerful to do so. When the people were hungry, they found Jesus compassionate and powerful um, to multiply tuna sandwiches and they ate and were satisfied. Their needs drove them to seek fulfillment for their needs. And their seeking drove them to find satisfaction in Jesus. They stand in stark contrast to Herod, don't they? The crowd's hunger, their symptoms of illness, told them that they needed to find a solution. Food, healing. And they found that solution in Jesus. Herod's guilty conscience should have told him that he needed to find a solution to his guilt some way to satisfy it but he refused to do so his guilty conscience drove him to irrationality probably kept him up at night and yet when he heard about Jesus he didn't see him as someone who could help but as someone to fear friends if Jesus cares enough about the crowd to heal their sick to give them food won't he care enough to hear about your needs If he's powerful enough to actually heal them, to multiply food for 5,000 plus people from just a few loaves and fishes, won't he be powerful to deal with whatever you bring to him? So we've seen the guilty king, the hungry crowd, and now we come to uh, the troubled sea, verses 22 to the end. After feeding the crowd, Jesus sends the disciples on so that he can send the crowds home and find some space to pray. As he is praying, the disciples find themselves caught in a storm. The waves beat against the sides of the boat. The wind blows against them. They find themselves in need. They need to find a way to safety in the midst of the storm. Perhaps you find yourself caught in a storm this morning. Perhaps you identify with Herod. You think, yes, I really am guilty. It's been playing on my mind, keeping me up at night. I try to force it down, but it always pops back up. We've seen that Jesus helps those who need him most, but what does that look like exactly? How can we bring our needs to Jesus when we're caught in the storm on a sea of guilty conscience when we really need him most? These verses provide a stunningly realistic model of what that can look like. The first thing to notice in these verses is that when the disciples needed Jesus, he came to them. It doesn't seem like the disciples were thinking too much about Jesus at the time that he showed up. They were too busy worrying about keeping the boat uh, afloat. In fact, their initial response to Jesus' presence isn't joy or relief, but fear. 
Verse 26 says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. It's a ghost. Now what does that remind you of? Look back at verse 1. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. It's a ghost, says Herod. The response is the same. I think Matthew means to draw a connection between the disciples' response to Jesus and Herod's response. Only in this case, Jesus isn't far off as Herod kept him at a distance. But he's in the midst of the storm. Jesus wants to enter into your storm. To enter into your guilt with you. And to embrace you in it. Listen to his words of comfort uh, to the disciples and to us. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus came to them. The second thing to notice is that Jesus empowered Peter to rise above his situation. Jesus didn't end the storm, not immediately anyway. But when Peter obeyed Jesus' command to come, he stepped out of the boat and the waves were like rolling hills below his feet. Just as Jesus had the power to multiply bread and fish to feed a great multitude, so he had the power to cause the liquid sea to behave as solid for himself and his disciple. And so he has the power to enable you and I to live meaningful lives, even beneath the shadow of our past wrongs. He doesn't necessarily take the shadow, the storm away, but he does make it possible to rise above the waves. Thirdly, uh, Jesus took hold of Peter when his faith faltered. Jesus took hold of Peter when his faith faltered. Christian, how often do you think, if, if only I had more faith, if only I trusted God more, then things would be better. Then I wouldn't be crippled by the, the weight of my past wrongs, by this nagging, guilty conscience. Peter's story proves that isn't the case. Verse 29, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and offered it to Peter. No, he took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't imagine there was much conviction in Peter's cry. This was not the cry of a, of a general leading his men into battle. It was the cry of a drowning man, a man who had nowhere else to turn. It wasn't the conviction of Peter's cry that kept him from drowning. It wasn't the strength of his faith. It was the strong hand that took hold of him as he disappeared beneath the surface. It was never the strength of Peter's faith that enabled him to walk on water. But the one he had faith, even shaky faith, in As Jesus pricks your conscience, even today, friends, what will you do? Will you suppress that conviction, push it under the surface? Or will you cry out to him, however feebly, and have him take hold of you 
um, to bring your head back above the waves. The final thing to notice is that once Jesus did end their trouble, once he had calmed the storm, the disciples' one response was to worship him. Verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Isn't that the only right response to someone like Jesus? Not to suppress him or to turn away in terror, but to come to him in worship and independence, knowing he is powerful and compassionate to help. I think it's easy if you're a Christian here today or just someone who's been to church a couple of times to think that you know this stuff. These are, after all, familiar stories, basic truths. And I know them too, but it makes me wonder, if I know these things, then why is it still so hard? Why as Christians do we still struggle with a guilty conscience or any other similar need when we know that in him we have all we need? I think it's because often we begin to grasp these truths, but we don't grasp the man. Jesus is a ghost to us, not the living Son of God who comes to help us in our time of need. So as we close, I want to leave you with three truths about Jesus um, that we've already touched on today. And with two questions to ponder as we finish our service and enjoy time together. Uh, later on the first truth Jesus won't always end our trouble but he does give us power to face it Jesus won't always end our trouble but he does give us power to face it this was true of the disciples in the storm it was also true of John the Baptist who was imprisoned and ultimately killed for his faithfulness to God's word Jesus didn't end John's trouble in this life. Yet he kept John firm till the end. You may be plagued with feelings of guilt by the weight of what you've done for the rest of your earthly life. But Jesus will be with you in it. And he'll keep you to the end. Secondly, Jesus cares deeply about our trouble and shows great compassion to us cares deeply about our trouble and shows great compassion to us. He, he doesn't send the hungry away. He feeds them. Neither will he send us away when we come to him in our need. And thirdly, Jesus is, is powerful enough to deal with our trouble. Jesus is powerful enough to deal with our trouble. He can heal the sick. He can multiply bread. He can end the storm. Just because he delays doesn't mean he isn't able. And one day we will know release from the shadow of our past, no matter how much it plagues us now. And so as we come to an end, uh, ponder these two questions as we come to communion. Do you believe that Jesus cares for even the worst parts of you? Do you believe that Jesus cares for even the worst parts of you? Secondly, do you believe that Jesus is powerful to cleanse even your blackest sins and to help you face tomorrow despite the weight of their memory?
you believe that Jesus is powerful to cleanse even your blackest sins and to help you face tomorrow despite the weight of their memory? Friends, if you're able to answer yes, no matter how feebly, know that he is able, that he has and will, and remember that with joy as we come to communion together. If you can't answer yes to either of those questions, friends, or perhaps if you've answered yes for the very first time, then it's time to stop suppressing your nagging conscience. Stop trying to make up for your past wrongs in your own strength. Stop trying to run away from them. Jesus cares for you, and he's powerful to help. If you'd like to speak to either Rob or me or to a friend that you trust about that after the service, I'm sure that we'd love to talk about that with you. But for now, let, let me finish as, uh, as Matthew does with another look at Jesus' care and then pray. Uh, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at uh, Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your care and your compassion to us. We are needy people. We're broken people. But we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we, um, we find uh, love and, uh, and power to, to deal with our needs. Father, I pray that as we come to Jesus now, we would come um, in dependence, in worship, that you turn our hearts to him and that you'd help us to, uh, to remember him. Uh, now. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and uh, sing um, a hymn called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins And Sinners Plunged Beneath That Flood Lose All Their Guilty Stains. And after that, Rob will come and uh, lead us in the rest of our service. Thanks,